All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is the intro for episode 76, and I have Jason Lingren with me. Um, on the back half of things here, we're going to talk about crude oil. Um, and I will point out, it is my view that we have no idea how oil gets to be where it is, what it is, what happens when it's refined. We don't know any of these things. Uh, Jason and I begin to tell the tale of the control construct that is crude oil. And I would ask, man, in 2017, should we really be burning fuels in the same way that we did at the turn of the century of the 1900s? Come on, man. Um, But up front here, we're going to address media. Media did so much damage this week, man. What's in the spirit of an age? I would suggest to everybody that the spirit of this age is wholly controlled and shaped by media. And it's a shame. It doesn't need to be this way. Uh, The damage that was done this week, if people would just pay attention, they would not be fooled. Um, You know, it's an eminence front. It's a put-on, to quote The Who. Um, Television is a hell of a thing, and we've covered this before. A television is designed to do what it does. The content that is put on a television is designed to do what it does. And basically, for those who have forgotten past episodes, a habitual television watcher, when they turn on a television, your brain is being affected the same way as if you'd taken an opiate. There comes a point when your brain just lulls into a kind of sleep pattern, and you're no longer capable of making decisions. Not only that, there are all these tricky techniques that are done in the editing room. Things like what I call the two-second cut. When you're shown an image and then there's a quick cut done in one, two, or three seconds, your brain doesn't have enough time to decide whether it likes it, whether it doesn't like it. There's no time to make a decision. When this is done over and over and over, your brain basically goes to sleep and quits even trying to make decisions. And the reason I bring this up is so much of the imagery that was brought to us by the eminence front, the put-on that is media this week, was telling if you were a person who could examine what you were being shown. Pretty simple. The problem here is that people sit in front of their televisions, and pretty soon they don't do anything but stare and drool. And what they are shown to them becomes reality. Well, I got news for you. The television is not here to shape your reality. It is here to program you. And that's what went on this week, and we're going to cover it. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lengren for episode 76, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 76. I have Jason Lengren with me. Um, It's been a week of fear porn, and that's what we're going to open up with here. Um, I'm going to try to talk about it in a way Uh, that people can hopefully think about and start to get into their adult minds and recognize this nonsense for what it is. We are also going to cover oil. Um, There is a whole thing about oil. Uh, Do we even know what oil is, where it comes from, what it's doing to our society? Um, Jason's going to bring endless information to the table about this. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. What a very weird week it's been, huh? Yeah, we passed another one of those milestones, didn't we? Um, The fear porn is unbelievable. Um, As many of the followers probably know, uh, I don't watch the news. I don't care what happens. I don't want that pollution in my mind. But this one's a little bit different. And I broke my rule and I went and looked at it because so many people were overwhelmed and so many people were not sure what to call it. 
And that's when I'd had enough. Um, there's no reason for people not to understand what to call this. And we're going to be addressing that. And a lot of it has to do with ego. Um, we're going to address a couple kinds of programming um, that I just kind of labeled. Uh, one I call nostalgia programming and the other I call fear programming. And we'll get into these things in a minute, but um, it's almost to the point where I'm gonna get myself a triple X stencil and start stenciling the screens of everyone's television with the triple X to warn them <laughs> to keep the children away from the fear porn. I mean, uh, just a bizarre week, hasn't it been? Yeah, and of course, just like all these events, uh, we see inconsistencies, to put it mildly, all over the place. Well, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna bandy it about. This is nonsense. This was on the FEMA schedule. People have demonstrated it. It is what it is. This was a FEMA drill. Um, we'll get into these things. But anyhow, um, do you want? Do you have anything to add before I before I jump into the kind of trying to break down programming in a way people can hopefully benefit from? Just that this is is all programming. I mean, people just have to accept it at this point. Like that, these things that they're doing. It's nothing but conditioning, and then they're just bringing us along from one step to the next to the next to the next. So go ahead, tear it apart, man. Yeah, well, it's it's not just that it's programming um, and putting fear and bolstering the egos of everyone in this world that buys into it so that they can't grow up. Um, it is also setting the stage for the things they will do on the back. No, no, no crisis, manufactured or otherwise, goes to waste in this world anymore as if it ever did. Um, and I certainly will tell you, you know, you're not long from going into Vegas and having backscatter x-ray machines at every doorway you have to go through. Um, so people need to wake the heck up. Um, people need to begin boycotting places that want to participate in this nonsense. It is nonsense. And get up into your adult mind. I hope I can help you get there with what we're about to cover. Anyhow, I'm going to demonstrate to people with an old quote from the Book of Samurai an idea about what's in the spirit of an age, um, and it plays directly into nostalgia programming and the the idea of fear, fear porn, and the ego-based programming our society gets so much of. So here we go. This is from the book Hagakuri, also known as the Book of Samurai. People may recognize that I think this quote's been in a couple movies, at least one I'm aware of. Here we go. It is said that what is called the spirit of an age is something to which one cannot return. That this spirit gradually dissipates is due to the world's coming to an end. In the same way, a single year does not just have spring or summer. A single day, too, is the same. For this reason, although one would like to change today's world back to the spirit of 100 years or more ago, it cannot be done. Thus, it is important to make the best out of every generation. Now, I included this for a reason, because I recognized the, the, the sentiment in this, even though I don't agree with the idea that it's proof the world is coming to an end. I don't agree with that at all. But the sentiment that is being expressed here, this nostalgic sentiment, is absolutely true. When my father was dying, we went to the Norman Rockwell Museum, and he could he was beside himself remembering his younger days, which were, you know, uh, depicted in these Norman Rockwell paintings at the Rockwell Museum and his loathing for where we were going. And this was before I think it was right before Bush, the second became president. 
So let's take a minute here and let's talk about nostalgia programming um, on the tale of that kind of nostalgic idea that's clearly been around hundreds of years if there is such a time zone. Nostalgic programming serves it's often implemented with things like movies, like you'll notice uh, you turn on the radio, there will be an 80s station or a 70s station or a 60s station. Uh, movies do the same thing. It pulls your mind back to a fond memory that no longer exists and, as was stated in the Book of Samurai, to a spirit of a time you cannot return to. Now, this is an important idea to think about. That spirit that you are reminiscing, holding so fondly in a nostalgic way, um, is holding your mind. <clears throat> With this in mind, let's talk about micro time zones. And again, this is just a, a term I coined on the tail of our last episode. Basically, we have three overarching times we can speak about, and this is covered in endless spiritual traditions, religions, and other things. We have the past, the present, and the future. Any thinking person will immediately understand that two of these things do not exist, the past and the future. The only thing that truly exists is the present, and it is so fleeting that, as I said the word present, it was already non-existent in the past. Nostalgia program pulls your mind into the past. The past doesn't exist. It robs you of the moment that is now. That is the idea behind nostalgia programming. Every time we turn on a movie that pulls us back or any other thing like this using nostalgia programming, it is robbing us of the present moment. And this seems like a pretty bold statement, but I make no apology. Anyone who studied different spiritual aspects of our world and the thinking that different people did in different areas of the world will hear things like this. The other day I was at the coast with my wife and way out on the horizon, many, many miles away, there was this double-masted double sailboat, a big one. And I began talking about it. Um, because I had this idea in my mind that I was going to cover the micro time zones. As I examined that boat so far away, I realized that it took the light that was giving me the image of that boat some period of time to reach my eye. Then it took my brain some period of time to process the light so that I realized I was seeing a boat on the horizon. You can logically deduce that the whole thing's an illusion if you understand that the, pre that the past and the future do not exist. What I was seeing had already gone by. This is kind of the Buddhist idea of where the monks walk all day counting their breaths, thinking of nothing else but counting their breaths as a novice monk, trying to pull their mind into the present. So when you consider the nostalgia programming, it is having a direct effect of robbing you from the present moment, which is the only part of this existence that is not illusory. And even trying to address it, you can't do it. It's already gone. And this brings us into fear-based programming, which is what's been going on all week on the tale of Vegas. Basically, fear-based programming relies on ego. Um, as was said in the book Dune, fear is the mind killer. I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. Fear will remove a person's ability to make good decisions. Fear, I mean, I could go on and on. It will do any number of things to affect a person's thinking ability and mind in a way that is not helpful to that person. False flag operations, almost all of them, rely on fear. Fear relies on your ego. It has been said that the ego is the false self born out of fear and defensiveness. That's attributed to John O'Donohue. 
What's going on here um, in many of the definitions you'll read is that when we're very young, you know, less than one, we haven't built our ego yet. And as time goes on, we build what is called an ego to defend our true self. And at some point, this false self called the ego takes over where we don't even know what our real self is anymore. That's one of the descriptions you can read. There's a movie out there called Revolver, and while I don't agree with the amount of violence in that movie, it does an excellent job of demonstrating to people what the ego is. It is the other. It is the false self, and it is what fear porn requires to work. And if you take that to logical extension, it means that a lot of us need to grow up because for our egos to be manipulated so readily means we're basically wearing diapers. There's, there's no getting away from this idea. As a matter of fact, how many people have seen the whirling dervishes uh, that spin um, in, in uh, I don't know whether it's, uh, I forget what part of the world they're in right now, but they wear these hats on their head. Those hats symbolize the ego's tombstone. So there are plenty of spiritual traditions, all of them, including early Christianity, where monks sat in cells to try to free themselves of the ego. That's what it's about. And fear porn requires an ego. So, Jason, I'm going to go a little bit further here before we jump back and forth and try to maybe demonstrate a little bit about our minds to people um, by asking the question, can you scare yourself? If I asked you, Jason, can you scare yourself, what would your answer be? No, because you're consciously aware of what you're doing. Right. Your brain knows what it's doing, so how could your brain possibly scare itself? Well, let's take this out to a little bit of a logical conclusion. When you're asleep and your subconscious and all the parts of your brain or many of the parts of your brain that you're not readily aware of come into play, you can in fact be scared in a dream. And that's your own brain doing it to you. And this really begins to demonstrate the false nature of the ego and the lack of control and the hackability of what we call our minds and our brains, which is exactly what this Las Vegas nonsense is playing on. So that was a lot to get out. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the Las Vegas Mandalay Bay. Where should we start? Let's start with the obvious stuff. Do we think that this is just another false flag event very similar to Sandy Hoax and all the other stuff. And of course, as soon as you start looking at it, what do we find? Inconsistencies everywhere, as always. Well, the real tell here is it was on the FEMA drill schedule. Game over. Yeah. Game set match point. FEMA pulled in something like two, three days beforehand. This was a FEMA drill that was again played off as real killing. Nobody was hurt here. And this again is an ego-based Operation, You see, because I watched endless people online knowing full well in their adult mind that this is all nonsense, but they were afraid to say it. Well, why were they afraid to say it? The reason they're afraid to say it is because possibly all these are you're being told all these people were hurt and killed. And if I say something against that, then I'll be attacked. There's your ego. There is your ego from preventing you from making a correct decision and saying what is true. What is true is this was a FEMA drill. What is true is no one was injured. What is true is this goes on over and over and over until enough people grow up, take off their diapers, deal with their ego issues, and assess what they're being shown. We're not going to stop going down this road. Um, let's take apart the... Uh, 
the scheduling of the Harvest Festival. Of course, the Harvest Festival, there's a whole thing in that I could get into, and it's on Route 91, which we'll get into in a second here. It was scheduled from September 29, which of course encodes 9-11 to October 1, which again, in in conjunction with Route 90, uh, 91, will encode 9-11. Um, same old, same old, it goes on and on. But I have a bit of a theory about the number 91. Um, James Alfred contributed some stuff. Some other people we know contributed some stuff of their take on what they immediately recognized as a false event. I'm beginning to wonder if 91 will replace 9-11 in the same way that the twin towers symbolized by the 11 in 9-11 were demolished and replaced by a single tower called, I think it's something like One World. Maybe that's what we're looking at in, in 91. 91 is a number that relates directly to the sun. There are people out there who would make the claim that it also relates to the four seasons. If you take 91 and multiply it by four for each of the seasons, you would get a year of 364 days, and that plays into the whole questioning of how many days are actually in a real year when you're really observing a real thing like the sun. So some of the things you begin to do when you're looking at false events is take the names apart for their etymology. One of the weird things about the Mandalay Bay is you can't get a meaning for the word. No one seems to know what the word Mandalay means, and uh, the closest you can come is that it relates to a hill called Mandalay Hill. Um, but it's obvious on the face of it that if you remove the Y from the word Mandalay, you have Mandala, the Mandalay, of course, being named after a place in what used to be called Burma, which is now Myanmar, uh, is almost 100% Buddhists who use the mandala. It is the idea of, uh, I don't know, a 2D representation of, of the universe. Um, but here's something that I think is interesting. The large hotel casino convention center, Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, is named for the city, despite the fact that the city is 500 kilometers from the nearest bay. Perhaps the reference to the line in Rudyard Kipling's poem I guess it's just called Anne. And a dawn comes up like thunder outer the China coast, the bay. The word thunder is going to come up over and over here. It's clearly related. So the claim here is that it is possible that the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Vegas was named because of Rudyard Kipling's poem, which includes the word thunder. And that will become apparent why that's important in a minute. I can also tie our old friend George Orwell to the Mandalay. George Orwell was stationed at Mandalay for a time while working in for the Indian Imperial Police in Burma. And his first novel, Burmese Days, which was published in 1934, was based on his experience in Burma. By the way, Burma is now Myanmar. He also wrote a number of short nonfiction essays and short stories about Burma, such as A Hanging in 1931, Shooting an Elephant in 1936. It goes on. But our good friend... James Alfred made a brilliant deduction, which I will share with you here, relating the whole nonsensical shooting in Vegas to the play Macbeth, of course. And here's what he wrote. He took the name Paddock, and of course, Paddock, when he did the etymology on it, typically means like a corral. In other words, when people are in a concert, you're basically corralled in, right? You need a ticket to get in. There's usually something holding you in, like fences or walls or whatever, like a paddock. But here's what he wrote. The gunman, Stephen Paddock, is interesting to me. The name in Macbeth 
paddock is the familiar or an attendant demon given to a witch to assist him or her in doing evil. In Macbeth, scene one, act one, which is probably critical, you are presented with a scene, a desert place. Hmm, interesting. Thunder and lightning. There it is again, the relationship of thunder. Before I go through the Macbeth thing that relates to paddock, the familiar or demon to the attendant witches, uh, I will point out that in the FEMA schedule, where uh, it's hard to find now, may have been removed, where it was showing that FEMA was going to be in Vegas, there was captions saying something like, this is not the thunder down under. So this is all very pertinent. Anyhow, a desert place, thunder and lightning, enter three witches. First witch, when shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? Second witch, when the hurly-burly is done, when the battle's lost and won. Third witch, that will be ere the set of the sun. There's the relationship to 91. 91 is a sun number. First witch, where's the place? Second witch, upon the heath. Third witch, there to meet with Macbeth. First witch, I come Grey Malkin. Second witch, Paddock calls. There's the familiar demon. Third witch, Anon, all. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and the filthy air. So that's a pretty brilliant find on James Alfred's part, associating the use of the word of the supposed made-up gunman Paddock to the first scene of the play Macbeth. Um, do you have anything you want to add before we do any more of this, Jason? Because I'm thinking about cutting this a little short on, on the Vegas nonsense. You know, only that... I don't know if they're doing this on purpose, that we people who like to tear into these things are going to notice what's going on. That That's kind of what someone said to me, one of my friends, that it's almost like they're so sloppy about it now they just don't care. So maybe they're just pushing to see how much the uh, the general public is going to pick up on this stuff or not. You know, maybe because there's this, the, the small percentage of us that really look into things and know what's going on. And then perhaps it's a gauge to see just how asleep the the rest of the people really are well i you know if that's true we're in real trouble because what i see online is people who are sitting there demonstrating that this is a false event yet afraid to say it because their ego will not allow them to risk calling death fake just in case there's some remote possibility that that death is not fake and i would point out if those deaths were real those people are gone the rest of us have to live with what is done on the tail of these things. But any person who wants to kind of take off their diapers, get their ego in check and work on becoming less egotistical and up in their adult mind and actually examine what you're being shown will undisputedly discover this is another false event. How could it be? in this world that supposedly housed humans for so long that there are this endless line of people who want nothing more than to pick up a gun and kill someone. Really? You all know what Sandy Hook was. You all know what the Boston bombing was. You all know what 9-11 was. And yet here we go online and everybody's ego stops them at the door from the fear-based porn programming, which requires the ego to work, and they cannot call a spade a spade. I'm here to call a spade a spade for you. The Vegas thing was a FEMA drill. It is nonsense. It is criminal. It is unconscionable. And I will give you all a tip. Everyone listening to this should go to the FEMA schedule every day. 
once a week, whatever, Jason and I may add it into the program and look where FEMA will be. I've covered this before. In the same way, if a human being apparently goes out into the woods and sets a bear trap to catch another human being and makes it impossible for any other human being to know it's there and they catch a human being, they've interfered with free will. They have a karmic price to pay. There's some universal rule that's been broken. They have to put a sign up at the edge of that woods that says something like, people may not want to walk here, there could be traps, or any other cryptic nonsense that they count as having tipped their hand. Well, FEMA always posts its schedule. Anyone who wants to go back and look at any number of these nonsensical shooting events and link it to a FEMA drill will get a, their eyes open wide. There are not endless people in this world that are so different from you and I that they want to pick up machine guns and sniper rifles and pistols and any number of weapons and kill other people. That is not what human beings are like for the most part. And while there may be damn few of them in the world, most of them are just like you and me. Get into your adult mind and do not fall for this nonsense anymore. If it takes much longer for the majority of people to wake up to this complete scam, there are going to be real consequences to the way we live. Um, and I would further point out before we leave the Mandalay hoax behind that I don't think there is another city in the United States that has as much closed circuit cam cameras. Matter of fact, I think that Vegas may be on a par with London for CCTV. So start to logically work out what you're being presented with here. Anyhow, we beat that dead horse. What's next, Jason? Well, I want to tear into the petroleum industry as a whole and how, in fact, that worldwide we are in a modernized version of feudalism. Right. I mean, I, the, the argument we're about to lay down here, I, I don't think anyone would, would, uh, would go against it at the end of the day. And uh, before we get into oil, how is it that we could be uh, in the year 2017 still burning something like these carbon-based fuels? But anyhow, over to you. Let's do this thing. So my whole point behind wanting to look into the petroleum industry as a whole is because, as we've discussed, it's both the literal and figurative grease to lubricate the, we the wheels of the worldwide elite control mechanism. In, as, as we've discussed, both of us agree. The bottom line is, what with the internal combustion engine being an invention of the 19th century, it stands way beyond reason that over a hundred years later that we should have a vastly better system of transport than something that burns this liquid and quite often gets no more than 30 miles per gallon on top of it. Yeah, there's endless stories of people who have, you know, they, they always call it the Tesla idea. I have problems with how Tesla has been described to us as a historical personage, but uh, they come up with some free energy plan and it's all, always bought out, shouted down, confiscated, this kind of thing. There is no doubt that technology has reached a level that we don't really need to base our whole existence on burning these carbon-based fuels that put corruption out the tailpipe. But anyhow, let's keep Let's keep it up. First, let's just lay down a, a, a general description of feudalism. It was the dominant social system in medieval Europe in which the nobility held lands from the crown in exchange for military service, and vassals were, in turn, tenants of the nobles, while the peasants, or the villains, or serfs, were obliged to live on their lord's land and give him homage, labor, and a share of the produce, also in exchange for military protection. 
So believe it or not, I would suggest that we are living in a feudal system of sorts still to this day. It's just not quite as obvious on the surface. I would suggest that the grand illusion, as we've been calling it lately, has much nicer curtains in 2017 than it may have sometime in the past, but there, it's still there. Some even take it so far as to say that we're living in all-out slavery, although it is a self-imposed slavery without chains, and it is willingly accepted by everyone day after day. Taking a look at comparisons to the past, a medieval peasant performed backbreaking labor while toiling away in the fields. No doubt about that at all. But so do many, many people today, most especially in the lower income sectors. I don't think anyone's really going to disagree with that either. Having a college education is, of course, no guarantee for a high-paying job, although it is a guarantee to be tens of thousands of dollars in debt if you didn't come from a background of at least some sort of moderate financial abundance. The peasant would also work less than eight hours a day on most days and only about 150 days of the year because the church, which controlled everything, knew how to keep rebellions to a minimum and a huge way to do so is frequent time off for holidays, religious events, and entertainment. The average American worker may get eight days of vacation for every year of work put in to contrast it against that. Yeah, man, what did Burns, Monty Burns say so so many years ago? Let the fools have their tartar sauce. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. You know, it, what what we see here is really the brave new world idea, where as you put it, the curtains are nicer. And the reason the curtains are nicer is because we're doing this because we agree to do it. And this is no different than the Vegas nonsense we just covered. If enough people would wake the hell up, quit walking around in diapers, being afraid to say what is painfully true, um, things would change. And the overall existence in the feudal system, I mean, we can demonstrate. I was around in the 70s trying to travel from the West Coast to the East Coast. Two times in the 70s, we were faced with an oil shortage. Uh, one of the times, at least, if I remember correctly, uh, you had to show your license plate, last digit of your plate, odd or even, to determine whether or not you could get gas. You want to talk about control in a feudal system, um, anyone trying to travel from the West Coast to the East Coast and you can only get gas every other day, well, think about it. It's control mechanisms, and I don't think there's really any arguing it, Jason. No, and as we're going to demonstrate, the amount of crude oil that's pumped out of the ground every day is just obscene, and I assure you folks, there's no shortage. No, um, I, I don't know how much we're going to get into, but as as I was looking around at some of the ideas we were going to cover, it's pretty clear that uh, oil wells that have been pumped dry have been gone back to a number of years later and they're full up again. Uh, plenty of people in the oil industry who were oil workers claiming that people don't even know what's being pumped out of the ground. Uh, and I'm sure we'll cover the idea of whether or not it's fossil fuels, um, you know, the nonsense they tried to tell us that we were putting dinosaurs in our tanks. Anyhow, go ahead. <laughs> Man. All right, to get some backstory to all this, while it was originally merely used as a lubricant, the original mass market for crude oil began to take off after Abraham Green began distilling kerosene for lamp oil in 1846. The first successfully drilled oil well was in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859. Before this, crude oil was gleaned from natural seepage that would have been above the ground. The early oil men were catching it in any watertight container they had on hand that can hold it. <laughs> so in Titansville, you know, is that what that is? Titus? Titus, Titan? yeah. I think so. <laughs> I think that's the, the Latinization of the idea of Titan. Anyhow, go ahead, man. In the mid-1800s, any liquid that needed to be stored tightly 
was done in wooden barrels. A barrel maker was called a cooper, and they had been producing watertight 42-gallon sized barrels since the time of King Richard III set the price of a tierce of wine at 42 gallons somewhere around 1483 to 1484. The 42-gallon barrel quickly became the standard for oil due to several practical reasons. A 42-gallon tierce would weigh over 300 pounds, which was about as much as any man could reasonably wrestle and move about. Twenty of these could fit on a typical barge or railroad flat car. Bigger casks would be unmanageable, and smaller ones were less profitable. By the year 1860 in Pennsylvania, the 42-gallon barrel became the standard. Since Pennsylvania had been at the forefront of the early oil boom, the standards used there would become adopted across the country. By 1872, 42 gallons became the standard for the Petroleum Producers Association. In 1882, the USGS and the U.S. Borough of Mines also adopted the same standard. You gotta wonder, man, one of the early companies you're going to address here is Standard Oil, and you know the name's got to relate back to King Richard III, who set the standard for what, you know, a barrel would be. What do you think, man? There's got to be a relationship there, doesn't there? (laughs) Standard Oil, yes. We're going to tear that one apart. It's Yeah, I would uh, be willing to bet that the naming of Standard Oil has directly to do with what the king outlined all those supposed years ago in our... uh, fallacy-filled history. So bulk oil was being shipped in the cargo holds of ships and cylindrical railroad tank cars since the 1870s. By 1883, oil tankers were being constructed with bulkheads to stop the free-flowing crude oil from sloshing, sloshing about, which could potentially cause a ship to capsize. By the time of the 1950s, the need for supertanker transport came about due to the closing of the Suez Canal. These would need to sail around the Cape of Good Hope, and by 1958, they came to be and could hold approximately 700,000 barrels of crude oil. As of 2011, the largest supertankers are the TI Europe and the TI Oceania, both able to carry over 3 million barrels of oil in a single voyage. Holy smokes, man, that's a lot of oil. What, do, do you know what the TI stands for? Do you have any idea? No, that just came up as they're, they're what they were labeled as. Yeah, I'll have to look at it. Um, are the TI uh, both able? God, can you imagine? I mean, you're talking three million barrels of oil in a single voyage. I mean, uh, and these guys are still using the standard barrel, right? So that's 42 gallons a barrel. Yeah, that's exactly why I gave that backstory, because that is still the standard to this day. So when you hear them talking about the amount of barrels of oil, each one of those barrels is 42 gallons. Yeah, I mean, so you're talking about 126 million gallons, I guess? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's an obscene amount. Ah, it's incredible, man. Go ahead, keep pushing. Right. Now, that's not the only form of transport. Pipelines were used from the early days of the oil business of the 1860s. By the 1900s, however, petroleum demands increased dramatically, and pipelines were built across the country. By the 1920s, with the massive growth of the automobile industry, pipeline mileage grew to 115,000 miles. The refineries were all in the east, and there were huge oil fields pumping the crude from Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. Now, considerable migration out to the West Coast had also been going on, as well as everyone's very familiar with. So, of course, the oil business went right along with it. 
Right. And uh, you're, I imagine we're going to get up to the point, you know, when I was, I don't know, still pretty young, uh, the, the big story of the day was the pipeline coming across the frozen tundra of Alaska, um, which is ironic because not too long ago I saw some quiz. There was some trivia thing going where they were talking about it. And the one thing everyone remembered is what I remembered about it, that it leaked all the time. So it's a bit ironic. But anyhow, keep keep weaving the web here. So a huge discovery of oil occurred in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska in 1968. In 1977, an 800-mile pipeline, that is the one you just mentioned, was constructed running from Valdez to Prince William Sound that was called the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. The height of its use was in the 1980s when it was carrying 2 million barrels every day. By 2012, it had been reduced down to 579,000. Right. And this is one of the points that really begins to play into the idea that you stated up front that there is and never has been any shortage of oil, because if I'm not mistaken, the people of Alaska get a check every year um, because something to do with the, the pipeline and the oil production. Um, but I think it's critical to point out here, you know, we're going to hear more about the Valdez um, and, of course, Prince William Sound. And whenever you see things named after the royals, um, there's probably going to be something to be divined there. Uh, anyhow. So the big thing that has been going on for some time now is the Keystone Pipeline System. It was commissioned in 2010 and is now solely owned by TransCanada Corporation. It runs from the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin in Alberta to refineries in Illinois and Texas, as well as to oil tank farms and an oil pipeline distribution center located in Cushing, Oklahoma. This pipeline made major public waves the last few years regarding its fourth phase called Keystone XL. It would connect with existing pipelines to refineries on the Gulf Coast. The U.S. side would be 875 miles long, and would run through Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska. The 36-inch diameter pipeline could carry up to 830,000 barrels of oil per day. It became an environmental issue and a symbol of the battle regarding the, of course, make-believe climate change and fossil fuel issues. It was originally rejected in 2015 by then-President Barack Obama, but current President Donald Trump signed Executive Order 13766, the second one that he signed as president, that establishes a new system by which to fast-track the construction of infrastructure projects. This was in conjunction with a presidential memoranda that permits the construction of the Keystone XL, the Dakota Pipeline, and also had a stipulation that all new pipelines in the United States must be constructed using materials and equipment produced in the United States. That last statement's a bit ironic because, I mean, this thing is starting up in Canada, which, is, of course, is a country still under the crown. But, man, the numbers were encoding so much. The 36-inch pipes, of course, you have the triple six. Uh, the executive order is a sly way of encoding 9-11 with inverted nines. Um, it goes on and on and on. But it's interesting to me uh, – the, there, there's absolutely going to be something to control mechanism built into this. Whenever you see like one president, you know, thumbs down something and then the next one thumbs it up, you can tell that they're floating it out and getting people used to it uh, uh, to get it implemented. But um, I think absolutely there there is no arguing. Uh, there was a reason for the Trans-Canada Corporation to uh, to get ownership on this thing. Of course, Canada and the crown still synonymous. Right. Now, when we're saying oil or petroleum, what we're talking about is crude oil. This is what's pulled out of the ground. 
crude oil is used in the production of not just gasoline, but numerous things such as, such as automobile gasoline, diesel fuel, jet kerosene, and plastics of all sorts. And when we start looking at this, you start finding that petroleum is in so many things, like food items. There's petroleum in food items like Coca-Cola, uh, vitamins, they just tons and tons of stuff use petroleum for whatever reason. But the big question behind all of this is, where is it actually coming from? How is it made? What, what is it that the Earth is doing to produce this substance? So again, we're going to get into this, Jason. I don't know if there's you know any way to completely answer it at this point, but there are a ton of people out there trying to make the argument that oil is basically about like the life's blood of what we would call Earth. Um, we know for a fact it's not dinosaurs, and even the oil companies have admitted flat out. But at one point, they were trying to convince you that uh, fossil fuels came from dinosaurs and all the things that lived in those imaginary ages when supposed nonsensical dinosaurs existed. So, I mean, as we get into this, do you feel like we're going to get any closer to a truer picture? Or do you think it's just one of those things, man? I can tell you that it's not fossil fuels, even leaving the dinosaurs part out and you're just going to discuss plants from a zillion years ago. It's it's just not it. it there's, there's direct evidence as long as what I'm getting is indeed what the scientific community really is putting out there all over the world. It's not fossil fuel. It's It's something else. Right. And it's kind of interesting. You know, I think it was the 60s when uh, California universities went into the Middle East and made them rich overnight by finding oil. But you're looking at a place that doesn't have any appreciable forests or anything else that would, you know, create so-called fossil fuel. But then a whole other fantasy kind of images being woven out of these ideas where they're saying, well, a million years ago, the Middle East was a lush rainforest, you know, these kinds of ideas. And this was back in the day when they were still pushing the fossil fuel, but I'll kick it to you. Let's go ahead. Let's rip apart any possible idea that fossil fuel was ever a real idea. Right. So there's two main theories on how oil might be produced. One is the abiotic oil theory, and the other is the fossil fuel theory. Now, abiotic oil that term is a collective group of notions that crude oil is produced deep in the Earth's crust by non-organic means. A recurring suggestion I have seen on its origin is that the Earth uses it as a lubricant for the tectonic plates or is a result of the tectonic plates being stacked and moving around in all those pressures. Um, this seems way more likely just because of what you said earlier about wells being drilled and then years later, people go back, untap them, and all of a sudden, there it's filled back up again. Well, what, did more dinosaurs die in the past couple of years? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, it's just the dinosaurs that lived in the next state seeped over. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's all ridiculous. But for my part, Jason, um, the basis of this idea that you just expressed, I think, starts to ring a little truer to me. It is a bit like, well, for lack of a better term, the blood um, you know, the circulatory system of the world. But I will say for the record, I do not accept tectonic plates at all. Um, and I never really thought about this till I went through the earthquake, which was one of the, I don't I wouldn't say bigger earthquakes I've been through, but longer for sure. It was a very long earthquake. Uh, on Easter Day, I don't remember whether that was 2010 or 2008, I've forgotten, but it's Easter Day, California quake, anyone could look it up. It was during that quake that I truly paid attention for the first time, not afraid, not, you know, shocked, oh my God, the earth is moving. Um, and I, I 
observed what was going on. Uh, and I've been in other earthquakes where literally you can see the pavement rolling and you're thinking to yourself, how can the pavement be rolling and not cracking and breaking apart? But I've seen it. I've even seen white concrete driveways roll with the earthquake coming by. During that quake, I really began to realize that there's something very wrong with the description of earthquakes we've been handed. And it was a very synthetic feel. And so then I paid attention to the uh, the newscasts on the tail of that earthquake. Of course, the fear porn came fast and furious, but the best footage they could muster was someone's pool sloshing back and forth. Uh, the water didn't even come out of the pool. Of course, the next thing that happened was they began to discover all these damaged buildings south of the border in Mexico, not too far from where San Diego is. And even when you looked at the damage there, um, it, it was, you know, insignificant. These were old buildings. They were cracked walls. There might have been a wall or two that fell, a lot of stuff on the floors and supermarkets. That's all to be expected. But then they began to talk about the Richter scale, and this is where it really became very apparent to me that it's all nonsensical. We're told that if you have a 7.0 on the Richter scale and then you have a 7.1, the 0.1 was 10 times more force. I forget the exact number they put on that quake, but it was, they just, these numbers keep getting bigger. Um, to, to quit rambling so much here, Jason, what I will say is this. I think there's absolutely in your abiotic point here something to the idea of the life's blood of the earth being represented in oil in some way. But for my money, uh, at some point, maybe we'll go at it. Tectonic plates are nonsense. Now, of course, fossil fuel is the other side of that, which is the mainstream theory. It's biotic or biogenic. And the theory was originated in 1757 by the Russian scientist Mikhail Lamanazov. Sorry, I'm going to probably butcher these uh, Russian names. He said that fossil fuels are hydrocarbons and therefore might be formed from the remains of dead plants and animals. And it seems that from all the work that was being done at that time, it was never intended to be more than just a hypothesis. Well, what's ridiculous about this to me is you've pointed out two things, abiotic and then basically biotic. So non bio or bio. Um, in this day and age, you're never going to convince me that the average lab in any university couldn't look at the substance we call crude and determine whether it was biotic or abiotic, not biotic. Um, and that's really what's being put forward here. And, you know, when I was a kid in school um, back in the 70s, they were absolutely showing you movies that were depicting basically a dinosaur dying, becoming oil, and then poured into your gas tank. Not too much later, they back off this idea, but it's clear that the whole thing was an obfuscation for some reason. So if I had to guess, I'd be with you, Jason, that maybe it's abiotic, but that seems a bit funny, too, if we are to express the world we live in as living in some way. Seems weird that the the flowing liquid, the blood or whatever you would call it, would be abiotic. But whatever, man. Back to you. In 1951, the modern Russian-Ukrainian theory of deep geological petroleum origins was first put forth by Nikolai A. Kudryavstev at the All-Union Petroleum Geology Congress. The former Soviet Union did extensive research into the origins and locations of crude oil because at one point they were actually a petroleum poor nation in direct opposition to the way they are today. And it is 
very difficult, of course, to wage any kind of militaristic endeavors without access to large quantities of petroleum. Now, with this in mind, between 1951 and 1965, under the leadership of two geologists, the aforementioned Kudryastev, and also a man named Porfiryev, they led increasing numbers of scientists in the Soviet Union to publish articles demonstrating the failures and inherent lies regarding the notion of fossil fuels. Yeah, and man, and we, we could really blow this out logically. I mean, let's consider you, you, you made a point here where, you know, how can we defend ourselves and have a military if we don't have access to all this petroleum? But let's consider World War II. Um, we're being told there's a point when Japan's making its bid to take over the world. Japan's as petroleum poor a nation as you could ever find. So how can that story we're being told have any legs at all? Because the people who were running the military in Japan had to know that we don't have access to all this oil. As a matter of fact, we are told that a big part of why Japan failed is because they couldn't get their hands on the oil. But my point would be is if you didn't have the oil in the first place, why would you be taking on the world? It makes no sense. None none of this logically makes sense. But for me, the key point in what you just said is um, the, the inherent lies regarding the notion of fossil fuels. There it is, man. Now, a huge social engineering aspect of keeping the false theory that crude oil is a fossil fuel is so that the concept of scarcity is always kept in the minds of the people, as well as blaming humans for their carbon footprint that leads to pollution and the make-believe global warming. Now, who originally pushed the idea of oil being a fossil fuel to get it out into the mainstream? The Rockefellers, of course. Of course. I mean, there's too many things we got to count the ways for here, Jason. And I'll tell you what, from now on, we won't count the ways on 9-11. We'll just do September as a whole. But uh, in terms of the Rockefellers, it's, you know, we're going to get into the same old players. So getting into the whole Rockefeller and Standard Oil thing, in 1859, John D. Rockefeller was only a few years into his first company in Cleveland that dealt with numerous items, including pork, grain and other commodities. And, of course, he was already making money quite well doing that. This was the year when Pennsylvania drilled their first oil line. This started the black gold craze, and people from all over flocked to try and get their share. In 1863, sensing a huge opportunity, Rockefeller and his business partner teamed up with a chemist and started a refinery. So, I mean, the, the way you read this, and we all know that history is a lie agreed upon, but the way this reads, it, it almost seems like Rockefeller knew the value of oil long before anyone else in the world did. Do you have any sense of how anyone even knew that this was going to be a big deal? No, that's the interesting thing, because early on, what it was used for was kerosene, and I'm about to get into that. The kerosene for just anyone to, to light their home with, just very general kerosene. Yeah, that would be an interesting look. You know, I'm I'm here not too far from New Bedford, uh, which is a state over from me, which was the whaling capital of the world. And we're told one of the big reasons for the whaling was to go get the whale oil so that you could light every home. But anyhow, that's kind of a sideline. I'll let you keep pushing here. Well, that was really important because, of course, in pre-electricity days, you needed light and it, you needed a, a reliable fuel source. So that's that's really what this all stems from, from what I can tell. Right. But, you know, that's that's what I was pointing to. Uh, some of the numbers that I think I remember from not too many bullet points back were mid to early 1800s. Um, I don't think the whaling died out 
Uh, I would be venturing a guess. I've actually been to that museum down there. Um, it was one of the biggest, richest places going. And now when you go into that town, uh, there's just all these big mansions that have been divided into poor people living. Uh, and it's a very poor nation. But the sideline I was getting at is um, do the oil, does the idea of going get whales for lighting oil overlap with the idea of what Rockefeller's doing here? I wonder anyhow. So unlike a lot of oil men of the time, John D. was not what was called a wildcatter, which is an oil prospector. He believed that drilling for oil was a very high-risk business, so he focused on refining the crude oil instead. Soon after, a new rail line connected Cleveland with the oil regions, and John D. built his refinery right beside it. It was one of the first in the city to produce kerosene, which was called the poor man's light at the time, because it could be produced cheap and clean. The demand for it, of course, soared, and this was what started him on the path to vast wealth and power. So this is Cleveland, right? So he's putting yep. up the first refinery in Cleveland. Um, that's interesting. I guess a couple of firsts there. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I'll never realize why that was in Cleveland, and the first oil refinery. Uh, I had not realized that. Now, John D. mastered every detail of the oil business and even created new products to sell. And being the awesome business guy he was, he even came up with a product from the waste material, and that is called petroleum jelly, which you probably know as Vaseline. Right. It makes you wonder, you know, uh, so few people call it petroleum jelly, but it says that right on. I wonder if uh, if there's health concerns with using these oil byproducts on your uh, person. Uh, I think my wife actually remembers a time when her grandmother would take petroleum products and actually put it on a spoon when they were sick. I forget what the product was, um, but there it is, man. That sounds dreadful. I can tell you that it's not supposed to be for internal use. Uh, that I can tell you for absolute certain. Well, that tells you something. Anything that shouldn't go in your body, maybe it shouldn't go on your body. And I would point out that one of the most common uses for Vaseline petroleum jelly back in the day was for coitus, right? I think so, yes. There it is being taken internally. Now, after a time, John D. had some arguments with his partners about the future of the business, and he eventually bought the refinery with some heavily borrowed money that put him deep into debt at the time at the age of 31, for $72,500, which would probably be about a million dollars in today's uh, equations. This new solo venture was called Standard Oil. So a couple of things here. There it is, the name Standard Oil, which, you know, I'm questioning, does that relate to the standard size of a barrel? And then back to King Richard III or whatever it was. Um, but this is an interesting bullet point to me because I'd never really considered it. Whenever I, you know, think about Rockefellers, I just think of an endless line of wealth. But that's really not the case in what we were told. So what we're being told here is that, where are we, mid-1800s here, Jason? Something like that? Late-1800s, Yeah. Late 1800s, the man's 31, he's borrowing 72K. You got to wonder, is this really the truth of things? So are we looking at a person who was an insider from the outset, or is the idea that the startups in America got as wealthy as the royals in Europe? Um, that's what I'm thinking about when you cover this bullet point. Is this a true thing? Um, did he borrow, uh, you know, in the late 1800s? And this filthy, filthy wealth that came later was started then, or is there something more to the story? I just wonder what was going on behind the scenes because I got to tell you, I looked at a lot of pictures of this guy and he's just got the most piercing, psychopathic eyes I've ever seen on anyone who is officially labeled a psychopath. You know, like he just has this stare and this look that was, 
I don't know, man. It's, it's very unnerving to look at him. And I, and I just wonder what kind of person he truly was, even though they say a lot of nice things about him to balance out a lot of the, you know, his, his extremely aggressive business behavior. So I don't know. It's a very confusing thing. And of course, most of what I'm gleaning from is all mainstream history. So who knows, right? Well, my adult mind tells me this is nonsense. Um, the idea that at age 31, he borrowed 72K, um, that doesn't make it you know, correct. But that's my feeling at the moment here as I observe what's going on. And here's why. We've done so much to cover the kind of systems of control that we've come up in, and we've demonstrated how far backwards they go. And one overarching theme that seems very correct for most of what we've covered is that the people who came to matter were already insiders or relations or approved in some way by the same old players who always held all the power. I would be damn surprised if there were actually people in America, which I consider to be the lapdog of basically Great Britain, um, that were poor and truly made their by by you know ingeniousness and good business sense and ruthlessness made fortunes could it happen yes it could happen but i suspect something else entirely um that i'm just putting it on the table that that's my best guess jason right no i'm i'm with you i really think there's more going on behind the scenes but i can only work with what i can find so this is the the timeline i tried to build Here's another thing. If I am correct at guessing that the name Standard Oil that Rockefeller founds relates directly to the standard size of a barrel put forth by King Richard III, then maybe we're seeing some of the encoding to royalty uh, that we see all the time. That's just that's just me surmising, though. Um, I haven't done enough to look at it. Go ahead. So his first plant was quite simple, and anyone could, in fact, get into the business with a reasonable amount of money. At the time, it would cost $10,000 for a small refinery, and a large one could be had for 50000 Rockefeller decided to make this a hugely profitable business for himself and began to build a massive operation to take advantage of the economy of scale. To grow his business, he took the approach of removing all competitors at any cost. By 1872, only a few years into the business, he used a series of acquisitions to become the largest refinery in the world. To continue growing even further, he went on a considerable buying spree, purchasing two dozen refineries in just 60 days. To pay for it all, he reinvested the profits he had and got banks to loan him even more money. This was how his oil monopoly was born. He was the first ever to focus on aggressive growth by buying up smaller companies, which is a move that is now quite common in the modern corporate world. Yeah, so so many problems with this story. How the heck did Rockefeller understand that oil was going to be so important? How the heck did he understand that the refineries was going to be the side that mattered? How the heck by the time he had borrowed 70 whatever it was K, and here we're only talking 1872, and he's buying two dozen, 24 refineries in 60 days. None of this story washes to me. Um, to me, this looks a bit like the story of Microsoft. Um, every time we see these world-changing kind of corporate ventures that are going to stranglehold control and drive the entirety of humanity, we always see the same thing. They're a monopoly of some sort. Microsoft and Standard Oil, uh, if you look at them side by side, are no different in this respect. But anyhow, Go ahead, Jason. Well, that pretty much brings us to the top of the hour. Before I start tearing into the rest of Standard Oil, I'd just like to point out that this guy did indeed get control of nearly 
everything regarding oil at the time period. And of course, everyone knows how the uh, the antitrust stuff came about in the early 1900s and all that, which in fact just led to him making even more money because all the subsidiaries grew and made stupid amounts of money. So that's what we're going to get into in hour two. We're going to finish the story of Standard Oil and take it on further all the way up to how what the petrodollar is and how all of this basically greases the entire world to keep it going uh, under the elite's control. Not only that, it controls every one of us. If we want to move around this world, uh, oil is the thing that controls that. Not only that, the technology that we have at our disposal. As I look at this story of John D. Rockefeller for the second time, we've looked at this a bit before, um, some of the things I'm beginning to realize is like, what, did this guy have a crystal ball? How the hell did he know that oil was going to be the lifeblood to everything? Or was it the other way around? Did he go and get the lifeblood and then force the technologies to use what he had created? That seems unlikely. There's so much here, Jason. By the time we get to the end of the bullet points, um, I think most people will understand that oil is, in fact, no different than the internet. It is in absolutely another aspect of modern feudalism based on the brave new world idea where we all agree to be in the prison cell we're in. But is there anything you want to cover anything before I do the close down here? No, I just I really want people to know who uh, are listening to this first hour that by the time we get to the end of this, there is no doubt that oil, the business as a whole, is indeed the control mechanism that the global elites use. That, that this is it. That it, the, the dollar itself, the money, all that is just secondary. This is actually the mechanism that they grease their cogs with and how they keep this completely controlled society going. Yeah, it goes to show you, man, with control of, of assets like this or world assets like this, commodities, uh, how much the world could be changed in a day. It really does. But before we close down the first hour here, I want to say, um, as this Vegas nonsense came to bear, I noticed in my forum a lot of people who were not willing to state outright what they knew in their higher mind to be true. So I'm just going to say to everyone out there, there is no arguing that Vegas was a FEMA drill. That's what it was. We've seen them over and over and over. We all need to grow up. We all need to take off our diapers. We find ourselves in an age where we're all, most of us, not all of us, most of us are wearing diapers. We got to get up out of those damn diapers. We've got to scrutinize what we're being shown. We've got to remember that belief is, in fact, the enemy of knowing. When the news spews death and hatred and fear porn at you, if you are willing to believe it, you are no longer capable of making rational decisions. If you refuse to believe it and challenge it, you will come to a whole different outcome and hopefully the correct one. There is no argument at all, at all, um, that this was a staged event. And so I know a lot of you out there probably immediately that's what you thought. But then again, how many of you were willing to state it outright on a message board to a person next to you on a telephone call in any number of places? How many of you out there were willing to risk damage to your ego to tell the truth? I'm just saying. Anyhow, that brings our hour one of episode 76 to a close. On the second hour, we are going to get whole scale into or wholesale into the idea of what oil is still currently doing to our world. And believe me, you, you know, we should be way beyond this by now. We should be so far beyond oil. Anyhow, there it is. Cheers. 